I invite you, if you have your Bible, to open up to Matthew chapter 26. We're working through Matthew 26 and 27, and uh, we're looking this morning at Matthew 26, verses 57 to 68. Over the past few weeks, we've been asking the question, how is Jesus' crucifixion the answer to all of the problems that our country is dealing with today. And related to this, why did Jesus die crucified on a cross? Why did Jesus die? And why did he die by means of crucifixion? And over the past two weeks so far, we've been looking at two ways to answer that question, two parts of the bigger answer. First, we saw two weeks ago that Jesus died on the cross to drink the cup for us, the cup of God's anger, the cup of the punishments, the judgments, the consequences of all that's wrong in the world. Jesus drank it so that we don't have to. And so the good news is that if we follow Jesus, if we ask to have a personal relationship with him and to have him forgive our sins, like Marilyn recounted she did in her bunk bed one night in college, then for us, the cup is empty. The cup is empty. And then second, we saw last week that Jesus died on the cross because God loves us. That God wanted to restore his relationship with us that we had broken to secure that relationship so it couldn't break again with a new unalterable commitment so that nothing could separate us or pull us apart from God's love. And so on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, sealed that love with his blood. So that's a second way that we answered that question, and Greg looked at that with us last week. Today, we continue to ask the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? And why is his death on the cross good news in light of all of the many problems that our country is facing COVID, social isolation, work and school disruption, masking debates, conspiracy theories, political divisiveness, cancel culture, riots, violence, destruction in cities and in our nation's capital. How and in what way is the good news that Jesus died on the cross an answer to all or any of this? Well, today we continue as we look for answers to that question, we continue our journey through Matthew's gospel in chapters 26 and 27. And I encourage you to continue to read through these two chapters week by week as we travel toward uh, Good Friday and then our celebration of Jesus's resurrection on Easter Sunday. Today in chapter 26, we're going to move ahead to verses 57 to 68, which Esther read for us earlier. The action in, in the story of, of the lead up to the crucifixion, as Matthew tells it, now moves to the imposing palatial mansion of the high priest Caiaphas, where Jesus is now on trial. And outside in the courtyard with the servants and with the hired guards is one of Jesus's followers, Peter. And I'd like to take in Jesus's trial this morning from the, uh, the perspective as Peter might have recollected it after the fact. 
as Jesus stood trial before the uh, Jewish leadership of his day. I sat there in the courtyard that evening, straining my ears to hear over the chatter and crackle of the fire, to hear what they were doing to Jesus in the large room nearby. I had managed to position myself so I could see Jesus through the open window and make out much of what was being said inside. What a week it had been that had led up to all of this. Jesus had been increasingly confrontational with the religious leaders of Jerusalem. I was excited that he was being more bold, more definitive in his claim that he was in fact the coming king, the rightful king of Israel. But it had led to this. And I was struggling to figure out how. Why wasn't he showing his hand? Why wasn't he summoning his miraculous power against his enemies? We were there by his side, ready to fight for him. First, at the Passover meal, Jesus had begun talking very strangely about the bread being his body and the cup, his blood poured out for us as a new covenant between us and God. Then in the garden, he'd grown so anguished, so distraught, he had warned us to watch and pray lest we give in to temptation. Temptation to do what? At the time, I had thought he meant the temptation to be afraid, to deny him, to lose courage and to abandon him. Later in the garden, Judas, that betrayer, showed up with armed guards. He had come for Jesus. They had come. And so I stood up. I screwed up my courage, sword in hand, ready to defend him. I swung at the first of them to reach him, and my sword struck a glancing blow. I drew blood, and as I reset myself to strike again, the next time I would finish him off, at that moment, Jesus stunned me. Put your sword back in its place, he snapped at me. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He continued, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels? Yes, Jesus, exactly. I thought, bring on the angelic legions. But Jesus refused. He simply surrendered to his captors and let them lead him off. I couldn't believe it. He was handing himself over to these enemies, making no effort to resist or to protest. I didn't know what to do. I was going crazy inside with shock and and confusion. And so I did the only thing I could think to do. I ran off into the night. Well, after a bit, collecting myself, I I then followed him at a distance. Confused and disoriented as I was, I, I would not give up on him. I would not give in to fear. I would show courage. And this is how I found my way to the courtyard that night. Listening as the, the chief religious leaders of our people grilled Jesus inside listening to the sham of it, the the injustice of it. It it was just gut churning. 
It was hardly a just trial. It was stacked against him. These so-called holy men were both his prosecutors and his jury. How fair is that? The witnesses they called couldn't agree on anything they accused Jesus of. Their stories fell apart as soon as they were cross-examined. The only accusation that gained any traction was that Jesus had claimed he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. But my blood boiled at this twisting of these words. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He only said, if somebody did, that he would rebuild it in three days. That's completely different. And I was even, or I wasn't even sure, to tell you the truth, what temple he was talking about, because the man always spoke in metaphors. I waited for Jesus to tell them to defend himself but he remained silent. Well, then the high priest asked him point blank under oath, no less. Are you the Messiah, the son of God? Finally, Jesus opened his mouth. You have said so. In other words, you said it, not me. It's not maybe the way I would have put it to you, but I'm not denying it either. And then Jesus continued saying it the way he wanted to say it the way he wanted them to hear it, I'll never forget these words. But I say to all of you, Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Whoa! As my head was reeling inside at these words, trying to absorb what Jesus had just claimed, the high priest was screaming, And tearing his robes, blasphemy, he cried. You heard it yourselves. He's worthy of death. Everyone else was shouting in agreement. They started hitting him, slapping his face, mocking him, spitting on him. And shockingly, Jesus did nothing. Jesus, who had always carried himself with such dignity, such honor, Jesus, who always had an answer when people tried to trap him and who always slipped out somehow of every tight spot. Jesus, who seemed invincible, was now caught in the trap, seemingly helpless, being made fun of, being abused, being shamed. It was so painful to watch. I felt like they were doing it to me. I'll spare you the rest of the story. It went downhill from there until Jesus hung helpless, naked, completely humiliated and broken, dying on a cross. How could it have ended like that? I couldn't understand it at the time. It was only with time and reflection and spoiler alert, after Jesus' resurrection, a lot of explaining from him that I and we began to get it. That we began to realize that back in the garden, when Jesus had warned us not to fall into temptation, I had been completely wrong about what that temptation was. It wasn't about failing to have courage. It was about having the wrong kind of courage. I should have seen it, of course, Because Jesus had said it repeatedly for as long as I had known him. 
but I didn't get it. I couldn't get it. I, it was so unlike any thought I'd ever had before. And truth be told, I, I didn't want to get it. What was it that Jesus was trying to help me and to help us to get? Well, things like this. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when they persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Do not resist an evil person. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Does any of that ring a bell? How about this? Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And then there were those words I'll never forget when I insisted that Jesus would never suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be killed. Jesus had replied to me, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Or how about Jesus' last words to us, his followers, before he entered into Jerusalem that faithful week? He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yeah, Jesus had told us as I look back on it. Again and again, he had tried to tell us. But we couldn't hear it. And that's why in the garden, I couldn't understand what the temptation was that he was warning us against. The temptation of winning, the temptation of power, the temptation of self-preservation, the temptation of greatness. That same temptation Satan had put to Jesus so many months before in the wilderness when Satan promised all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor I will give you. If you just bow down and worship me. The temptation to seek power, to seek greatness, rather than to give it up, to be a servant. It was Satan's way, not God's way. In retrospect, that's what was going on that night at the trial at, Jesus, at Caiaphas's house. The powerful, the honorable, the great ones were judging Jesus, a simple Galilean carpenter, because he was threatening and calling into question their way of being great. And yet, in a moment, Jesus had flipped it on them. That's why the chief priest tore his robes and why they all cried out against him. When Jesus said these words, but I say to you, from now on, you will, be, or you will see the Son of Man 
sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now there's a lot that I don't know, but one thing I do know is my Hebrew Bible. I learned it from childhood. I had memorized those verses that Jesus had quoted. Sitting at the right hand, that's Psalm 110 verse one. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand in the place of honor and the place of power until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was about the Messiah, God's king, being exalted to God's right hand to reign with him over the earth and God's enemies being defeated at his feet. And that's who Jesus was claiming to be. And guess what that meant for uh Guess what that meant as to who was going to be the footstool under his feet. (laughs) And then Jesus says to those enemies, that other verse from Daniel 7 about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Picture this heavenly court scene with me. Thrones were set in place, Daniel tells us. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The courts was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn of the beast was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Ah, the four beasts of Daniel 7. Those terrible monsters in Daniel's vision with their terrible horns to gore and to trample the peoples of the earth. These brutal empires, great godless nations that oppress and that harm others. Will they win in the end? No, Daniel reminds us. God will judge them with a court trial and session. God will strip them of their authority, slay those satanic beasts, and give charge instead to one who is humane, one who shows true humanity, a true son of man, over against the monstrous beastliness of the other powers. One like a son of man. Do you see what Jesus was saying? What he was claiming before the Sanhedrin that day? He was flipping the court scenes. Here he was on trial before the religious leaders being judged as a blasphemer. And he says, guess what? God is putting you on trial right now for putting me on trial. And I'm the one who will be vindicated. I'm the son of man. God has chosen my way of leadership over your way. You are the satanic oppressive beasts 
and you are going down. Do you see it? No wonder they got so angry. Jesus was claiming to be God's own special eternal ruler as he stood weak before them, saying that the religious leaders were the evil beasts. I couldn't see it then, but I see it now. On the cross, Jesus was going to show them all God's way for living, for leading, for functioning in the world. It's not the way of power and status, the way of greatness and might. It's the way of service, the way of laying down your life even for your enemies in love. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And I now know that if we're going to follow him, that's what we need to know about his kingdom and the way it works. It's the way of meekness. It's the way of peacemaking. It's the way which will often be persecuted and which will never persecute others. But we'll love. We'll love even our enemies and serve them in humility and in gentleness. That's why I say later in my first letter, if you've read it, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. You see, the way of power, the way of greatness, the way of victory that we're tempted to hold on to is the way of the beasts, the way of those who condemn Jesus, the way of Satan. It's the Antichrist way. The way of Christ is the way of weakness, the way of service, the way of love, even for our enemies. Well, thank you, Peter, for showing us yet another reason that Jesus died on the cross. Let me close this morning then by asking the question we've been asking each week. How is Jesus' death on the cross the answer to the problems our nation is facing today? It's very simple. On the cross, Jesus not only tells us, but Jesus also shows us the way Christians are supposed to live in the world and the way we're supposed to treat others and even our enemies. Not to outmaneuver them politically, not to outshout them on Twitter, but to take up our cross and follow our master who died for his enemies because he loved them. To turn the other cheek, to do good to those who would hurt us, to love our enemies. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be people of good news in today's world. It's what it means to show people Jesus and to show them the power 
of his death on the cross. Let me close with this, this story about Clarence Jordan. Jordan was a brilliant man. He was a farmer and also a New Testament scholar. He had a PhD in agriculture and another in the biblical languages. And this black genius is probably best known for writing the Cotton Patch Gospel and for helping to start Habitat for Humanity. He also founded a farm in America's Georgia called Koinonia Farm. And it was a small but influential religious community, a community for poor whites and poor blacks who sought to embody a vision for unity and for reconciliation and for the way of Jesus. Well, as you might guess, such an idea was not well received in the Deep South in the 1940s when it began. And sadly, a lot of the opposition came from good church folk. Well, the local town did all they could to stop Jordan from fulfilling his vision. They boycotted him. They slashed the tires of those who lived and worked on the farm. They did all manner of things to undermine and persecute these people. Over and over for over a decade, they tried to stop him. And finally, in 1954, as the civil rights era was heating up, the Ku Klux Klan decided to get rid of Jordan and his farm once and for all. They came at night with guns and with torches. They set fire to every building on the farm, except for Jordan's home. They chased off every family living there. And then they riddled Jordan's home with bullets and they left into the night. During that traumatic attack, as it was going on, Jordan recognized the voices of many of those behind the hoods. Some of them were church people. One was the local newspaper reporter. And the next day, in fact, the, the, new, the reporter came back out to see what was left of the farm. The rubble was still smoldering. The black land was charred. But to his surprise, Jordan was in the field hoeing and planting. I heard the awful news, the reporter called. I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. Jordan just kept on hoeing. The reporter started poking and prodding, trying to get some reaction from Jordan. But Jordan was just quietly determined to plant crops rather than to pack up and leave. Finally, the reporter said in an arrogant voice, well, Dr. Jordan, you got them two PhDs and you put 14 years into this farm and there's nothing left of it at all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Jordan stopped, turned, looked at the reporter and said quietly but firmly, about as successful as the cross. Sir, I don't think you understand. You see, Jordan understood. He understood what it means that Christ died on a cross. He understood what it means that following Christ, or sorry, he understood what it means that followers of Christ are to take up their crosses and to follow a crucified king. He understood what love looks like. And that the results and the effectiveness of our efforts in this world can't be judged in immediate worldly terms. 
And beginning that day, Jordan and his companions rebuilt Koinonia, and this farm and this religious community, I believe, still exists to this day. So the question for us is this, as we seek to be people of good news, as we seek to follow Jesus in the times we're living in, times of strife, times of animosity, times of mistrust and suspicion, times of anxiety. The question is in what way will our lives, our actions, our reactions bear the message of the cross? to a world which desperately needs to hear this good news. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to die on a cross for us, to show us the way to be saved from the penalty of our sins, but also to show us the way to escape a life of sin by living the way of love that you lived. This is so counter to our human nature. Um, as Jesus' own first disciples, Jesus, you know, they struggled for years to get it. And yet by the power of your Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give us a new heart so that we will have the heart of Jesus for those around us and for one another. Thank you so much for erasing our debts when we fail and for empowering us to live this kind of life. Amen.